Welcome, listeners. This is the Montague Reporter Podcast. It is affiliated in some ways with the Montague Reporter newspaper. Um, I'm Mike Jackson, the managing editor of Montague Reporter newspaper. And that over there is Sarah Brown Anson. Hello. Yes. Hi. Um, thanks for being here, Mike. Thanks for being here, Sarah. We're yeah. keeping this live in the MR offices. Mm-hmm. And it is Friday, June 9th, 2023. Yes. We are voices from the past. Yeah, hopefully you're listening to this next week sometime. It's okay if you're listening to this in the distant future. Uh, what's on tap for us uh, this week? Well, um, we should start with Ask the Editor. Uh-oh. Ask the Editor. Ask the Editor. Ask me, ask me, ask me. By the way, please, listeners, please submit your questions. We know you have like some burning questions for Mike. It can be as specific or as general as you want. This one's pretty general. How many writers are there for the Montague Reporter? Do they get paid? And how does one become a writer for the Montague Reporter? Those are all very good questions with very complicated answers. When oh. people ask me how many people, just in general, uh, like are are doing the paper, it's always like... I never know quite how to answer that because there mm. are, you know, just a few of us. I think I would say um, I'm the only full timer in the Montague Reporter currently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is one way to um, try to s- start orienting people. And then there are a lot of people who do a lot part time and including a couple of very regular writers, you know, weekly writers. Then we have a lot of people who we'll do something um, once in a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, you know, we have a lot of writers who write every two weeks or, you know, every month or every time we ask them to, or <laughs> every time they, you know, just catch a wild hair to, to write about something and, mm-hmm. and pitch it to us. So uh, we have, you know, there, if you want to go back through and kind of check and count them up, usually a, a lot of bylines. Tons. Ton. I've, I've noticed a lot and I've talked to a lot of different people who, yeah, who write semi-frequently or Yeah, we, we, we want to build up actually, I think, or I would like to build up the number of semi-freaks that are, mm-hmm. are you know, in the, in the loop. Um, mm-hmm. People who, you know, once every three months would, would write a thing, you know, mm-hmm. if it wasn't like a huge deadline pressure or if it was something that, you know, was within their pre-existing interests. Uh, there, there are low barriers to entry, um, kind of except just stepping onto the escalator in the first place um, can be, you know, I think mm-hmm. a little daunting. So um, yeah. really the best way to do it is to talk to me or our features editor, Nina Rossi. You can reach me at editor at montaguereporter.org. If you're pretty sure that you'd be working with the features, um, you can try Nina at features at montaguereporter.org. And um, yeah, just get started. Um, Nina and I do talk about things um, and plan things out. Uh, Sometimes we're both talking to writers and, you know, both editing. Um, And uh, yeah, sky's really the limit for people who want to write. Um, We do pay people. Uh, Not all of the writers get paid some offer to to volunteer and the pay that we have is not very high there's there's like a per article um you know fee that that we we give the majority of news articles are you know for fee um i try to you know not 
I just kind of have the two things disconnected because I don't want to be thinking about like, you know, is this person volunteering um, while we're in the middle of, of writing news and stuff like that. So um, sometimes I don't always see, um, you know, who's ending up putting in for, for um, you know, this, uh, not a lot of money. I, I will say like I, I've over time, I think the most useful way uh, of thinking about it, um, you know, without, disclosing uh closely held numbers um is just you know it's gas money mm-hmm. it's like ice cream money it's it's not paying your time like selling your labor kind of money right right and so i mean sometimes we'll have people who you know have made living wages or at least lived off their labor as journalists you know get in touch and i, I kind of have to say you know like we're <laughs> we do not have a lot of money like we're essentially volunteer um, mm-hmm. outfit and you know if you want to keep in shape you know you can feel free to to um put in some articles for us uh while, while you're looking for something else that's going to be sustaining but if you're really trying to um you know put food on the table um or put food on your family um then uh you know i would I would say uh, put that time into into uh, reformatting your resume rather than <laughs> rather than messing around with the Montague reporter. Yeah, um, but there is some money, and um, yeah, get get in touch. Yeah, um, so I'll just chime in a little bit. Um, I wrote one article. You can get some money for that. <laughs> yeah, I still don't know what the rate is because I didn't send in an invoice. That's actually a pretty important part. Um, to specify, like, everyone who writes is an right. independent contractor rather oh, yeah. than an yeah, yeah, employee. Yeah. Yeah. So then You're it's selling like, us a thing yes, if yeah. you're doing this. Yeah. yeah. So the, the way it's done is actually someone else in the organization, you know, just sits on an, an email inbox and gets all those requests of people saying, hey, you know, I've written uh, three articles since the mm-hmm. last time, you know, you cut me a check. Um, can you give me three, uh, unit of money? Yes. And, uh, then yeah, we cut checks, uh, once a week and, uh, okay. yeah, never look back. We were joking earlier on in the office today, actually about staff at the Montague reporter doing a, a work to rule action, oh. um, only doing the, the tasks that are specified in their contracts. However, there are no contracts. So, right. Yeah, that would yep. be a little tough. Yeah, that would be a yeah, that'd be a papers over kind of thing. Um, yeah, it is easy to accidentally start doing too much over here, <laughs> and uh-huh. um, uh, you know we always try to try to look out for that not happening. Uh-huh. Um, I've seen it happen a couple of times. Um, it might have been happening to me for the last ten years. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anything else about writers? You don't know how many. They do get paid but you haven't said how much and how does one become one? We already covered that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We cover five towns, right? So there's six people who are regularly covering just the select board meetings in those five towns mm. right now. Um, yeah. So there, there's a half dozen, you know, it's just not, um, yeah. How do you count writers? It's either less than 10 or it's dozens, mm-hmm. um, depending on where in the, in the spreadsheet you draw the line. All right, let's talk about schools. Let's talk about them. We've talked about on the podcast before how you ended up getting on the Gil Montague Regional School District beat. And I assume this story that you wrote is kind of under that umbrella. It's a labor dispute. Yep. Um, Tell us more. So the Gil Montague Education Association, um, which represents, it's not just uh, teachers, you know, as paraprofessionals and 
also, you know, janitorial, uh, food service staff, there's, there's different units, um, in it. So, um, I think sometimes there's been some, some slippage, um, when we talk about the teacher's contract or the, you know, the staff union, et cetera. But the, um, the staff union in the school district has been working for, for quite some time without a contract. And, um, you know, it's always tricky, um, when there's negotiations going on, when, things start coming out into public. Um, I think it's, it's tricky for people on both sides of the table when that happens and also can be, you know, a complicated thing to try to cover in the news, but it is certainly news that, uh, the GMEA started this week with a, a work to rule policy. And what does work to rule mean? It is just doing the minimum of what you are contractually hired for, which in many, many workplaces would grind everything to a halt. And I think that they're, you know, not trying to do that because their work includes, you know, the education and safety of children. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think so they're they're trying and we're seeing this, you know, a lot right now with teachers um, in in this kind of uh, cycle of labor struggle. It's such a big deal to have an actual teacher's strike, you know, withdrawal of, of labor from the schools and is really a thing that that kind of grinds society to you know at least just a lot of disruption because mm-hmm. everyone's family schedules has to change and you know they're not trying to do anything like that but they are doing what they can within those parameters um, to really try to to draw public attention um, to but they argue um, and I haven't been in these meetings so I don't know but they're saying is uh, you know, an inflexibility on the school committee's side to, to come around in negotiations. Um, there's a the mediator now formally involved in the negotiations. So. Uh, what does that mean? It's a, a federal mediator? To, That's to actually a good question. Um, I didn't ask. I know there are a couple of different um, types of, of mediators. I don't think that they're actually like a a federal employee, although I could be wrong. Um, yeah, I should I should ask next time what I'm saying. But it is under the National Labor Relations Board um, and National Labor Relations Act. There's all kinds of things specified about what happens um, at certain stages of, you know, if negotiations aren't moving forward, um, a mediator is appointed. So they're, they're at that stage. And, uh, you know, on Wednesday this week, um, I went up to Hillcrest Elementary and watched all the teachers kind of gather out front and then walk into the school together at 829 because mm-hmm. their job officially starts at 830. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, to really highlight, you know, that's just one of many things that um, they, they do. And really most people who work in schools, you know, are just always doing all kinds of different things to, to try to make things work well, you know, mm-hmm. as an educational environment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so can you get to the uh, substance of the dispute? It's all about cost of living adjustments? Yeah, it sounds like just about everything else was was kind of um, hashed out. Or, and here's a slippage, maybe this is Unit A, the main teacher's um, unit. Um, but it's just down to cost of living adjustments um, mm-hmm. in the contract. And the union is saying that their current offer is... Um, over a four-year term, uh, the first year is, is the school year that's actually just ending now, or mm-hmm. next week, I think, is the last week of school. Right. And um, so they are trying to retroactively have that 
year be two percent bump and you know the school committee agrees to that next year three percent and the school committee agrees to that and then from there the 24-25 school year the union is asking for three and again the following year fy26 for three and you know hearing different things but it sounds like the negotiators for the school committee have said that they'd come up as far as two percent for each of those years Um, that's not something that you know the school committee necessarily agrees on or has endorsed. So, you know, we got to be pretty careful. But like, if that's actually the lay of the land in those negotiations, you'd think it's pretty close. And I have a lot of questions about that that I could ask for the school committee side. Um, they are being at this point, you know, this is June 9th, they're, they're being pretty uh, tight lipped. Um, they put out some official written statements about their position. Um, and they're saying, you know, we don't want to be having this negotiation in public, which um, you know, is also a <laughs> reasonable thing to ask, you know, for the position that they're in. But it does, um, you know, mean that we're trying to fill in some of the blanks um, based on implication or, or speculation or hearsay. Mm-hmm. I'm just an outsider, but 2% or even 3% seems like a pretty low cost of living adjustment when the rate of inflation is 6 or higher percent. And you're looking at the cost of living going up higher than that. Uh, that's just me. Yes, yep. I mean, the, the you know... <laughs> just the peanut gallery. Staff I spoke with um, uh, say, you know, this would be nowhere near uh, keeping up with what we expect inflation to stay at. And mm-hmm. uh, that sounds correct. It's also, as the school committee points out, you know, right around the range uh, where a lot of area teacher contracts are coming in at. And I guess, you know, something to to take a big step back, we uh, don't have very high union density in this country right now um, relative to A, you know, what it used to be in this country or B, um, what some other countries are. And this is kind of the first time since we've had that drop in density that we have now a high rate of inflation, right? So um, where we are going to be able to see, you know, workers keeping up, you know, that's in two different places. That's uh, kind of the the marketplace, right? Like where basically workers can vote with their feet and employers just have to, uh, I guess, more nimbly chase after if, if wages are inflating as part of that. But, you know, when you have actually this codification in contracts, um, you know, you you have in some ways, you know, potentially an institutional lag on on the ability of an organization to to pivot like that. And we've seen this theme a couple of times recently, you know, we saw it over the winter when we were talking about the fuel assistance situation locally, where, you know, all of the fuel assistance applications in uh, this part of the state, you know, are, are all processed by one organization and um, they didn't have enough people doing it. And they also weren't increasing the amount of money that they were offering to the people who would do it. And when we asked why that was, they said, well, we would have, you know, the rates are all set and blah, blah, blah. And, um, it's, it's an interesting thing to look at, you know, if really, um, we're in a, a period of inflation, you know, what the relationship is between wages and, and all other commodities is like a very central, um, you know, thing to a lot of people's lives. And, um, you know, we see it in the schools and other places, you know, kind of public sector union jobs, it's going to look a certain way. And no one's going out on strike strike around here, but this isn't the first union to go on work to rule this winter. 
We saw South Hadley from November to January um, did work to rule. They Just settled to the clarify, contract. schools. Yep, schools. Yeah, the educators. Educators, yep. yep. Right, not a general, general uh, <laughs> action of, of all workers in South Hadley uh, would be difficult to, to uh, organize and carry out. But uh, the South Hadley schools, which are unionized, uh, mm-hmm. did this. And um, Amherst, um, since uh, April, Amherst Pelham. And I believe Hampshire Regional, or at least they've authorized it. Um, I've, uh, I guess, got to ask uh, or check in on that mm-hmm. claim. But I, I think that the union at least um, voted to authorize it. I don't know if they're doing it. But uh, yeah, this week at least, um, you know, Gil, Gil Montague. And we'll see how it plays out. I really don't know. Um, it might just be the last little push needed for one or both sides to, to move um, their next scheduled negotiation. Uh, for Unit A isn't until well after the last day of school. But, you know, I, I asked the vice president of GMEA who said, you know, if, if the committee wants to float an offer, uh, you know, they could they could decide whenever to call the thing off. So, yeah, um, I'm not a futurologist. It is pretty interesting um, to see happening. And I also am, am interested in seeing how it's impacting students and how it's impacting families in general. Um, it's a big thing happening kind of in our community. Yeah, it's really big. Um, so thanks for reporting on it. No problem. And also just, you know, on a on a how the sausage is made kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my article this week didn't go super in-depth for a few different reasons. Um, and one was just, you know, watching the, the Daily Paper also working on this and just making the calculation that I didn't want to be a second reporter trying to get to under the same feet as other people. Um, so I kind of chose which chunk of it um, I wanted to take on on, uh, on Wednesday. And, uh, you know, it did end up, I thought, being the most uh, newsworthy thing in the paper. So it's, it's up there above A1. Um, but I think that, you know, I want to kind of acknowledge that there's a lot of other pieces of it, and especially you know, talking with, with families um, and students about, about what it looks like on their end in the schools right now that um, I have not yet done. What else was in the paper? This uh, is more of a regional story, but it's super interesting to me and also could have a big economic impact regionally. A few weeks ago, there was a big freeze when fruit had already started forming, and it seems there was a lot of damage to the little fruit um, buds <laughs> on trees. fruit buds, yeah. So, which is sad. There's, like, a picture, and it's, like, a, a baby apple bud, and it's, like, you know, a few millimeters large, Um but it's really interesting to see how the fruit is made. Anyway, unfortunately, the fruit crop might not be very good this year. Yeah, this article uh, came to us. Um, Brian Zayats had already written it. Brian is involved at the shoestring. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're colleagues and uh, kind of, uh, in some ways, uh, a cousin publication of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, uh, we share a semi-regular writer 
Yes. Or we share a writer semi-regularly. So Sarah Robertson. Sarah Robertson. Who you're referring to. Yes. Yeah. Um, Brian's also written a couple for us and uh, they're all online and, and we're in, in print and a little bit more regionally bound. So, um, mm. you know, when things are relevant to both audiences, we don't feel like we're spamming people by co-publishing. Um, yeah. Brian reached out and said, you know, is this one that the reporter will be interested in? And mm. uh, yes, totally. Absolutely. It was. Um, it's a good article and uh, worrying topic. Yeah, so uh, the shoestring is a news outlet, um, and they mostly cover stuff down in Hampshire County, mostly, but also like regional stuff. So if you're like a newsie and you live in Franklin County, I highly recommend the shoestring. Um, yeah, super interesting. Yeah, I don't want to, um, you know, dox anyone or whatever, but the, <laughs> they've been based in in. Hampshire County, and I'm noticing that a number of the people involved in the shoestring at this point are living in Franklin County. Oh, uh, I did not know that. Might be a reflection of housing prices. Yeah, um, East Hampton is really blowing up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you know they, they have been covering stuff specific to Franklin County, also, okay. um, and also Hampton County. You know, they're they're really yeah. covering the whole region. Uh huh. So what's what's the um, substance of what happened? with the freeze? Well, Brian spoke with Dave Hayes, the weather nut, who explained things about um, why it got colder. Mm -hmm. And it was because the place that it was colder, the air from there came here. That's my understanding of it. <laughs> and, colder uh, from the north? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Could write volumes and volumes about the whatever uh, relationship there is between climate and weather. But this is a freeze um, that we haven't seen in a while. Um, not a never kind of freeze for me, but definitely like a, oh man, when that happens, it's bad for yeah. for farmers and yeah. fruit farmers. Yeah. Um, Brian also talked to Tim Smith, who owns Apex Orchards in Shelburne. And Tim Smith said, I've been told by my elders that the last time the farm had a freeze out was 1940. Right. So that's a long time ago. Right. Yep. Uh, 1940 was the last little ice age, according to uh, angry uh, Twitter comments I've read. Um, so, oh, no, that's not true. Um, but uh, one of the other interesting things about this um, was was you know also the discussion of maybe not being in a position to to hire um, seasonal laborers who have come up um, from Jamaica every season for years and years now. Um, and so it's not just uh, we might not have local fruit for the, the fruit stands and downstream the food processors, you know, businesses, mm -hmm. um, you know, who want to say this is made with local this or that. Um, but, you know, this is also something that, that impacts the workforce. And um, in this case, in a way that might be hidden from some people around here. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, that's that's just one orchard um but we should remember that you know this is also kind of spread throughout the region mm -hmm. um there might be a lot of um seasonal workers um you know who, who've come come here um you know for years who aren't facing having work here mm -hmm. yeah it's going to have a big impact i think long term on, on folks and also the farm's longevity and in their workforce perhaps yeah yeah and, you know, these things happen um, not just because of climate change trademark um, or whatever. Sometimes 
bad things just happen outdoors as well. You know, I don't want to, to play up or down anything. I was reading last night because I was attending a concert in a bookstore. Um, I pulled a book off of the shelf next to me and was reading about a plague of grasshoppers in the American Midwest mm -hmm. um, in the late 19th century where, you know, there was grasshoppers um, a foot deep as far as you could see and people were trying to dig trenches and push the grasshoppers into them and set them on fire but so many grasshoppers were falling from the sky that the fires were being extinguished and then all of the water was spoiling um, because of the the insects and oh my God. so it completely you know wiped out like a huge region people put you know their belongings back into their wagons if they still had a wagon and, and kind of tried to go somewhere else and then those who stayed discovered that the grasshoppers had laid eggs in the soil the next year so it's Jesus. <laughs> it was putting you know uh the, we've had uh air quality problem this week here which we're not super familiar with but you know there's yeah. wildfires in nova scotia and yeah um that's not healthy but um you know not not to downplay it, but also, you know, the, the scale of catastrophe, you know, has also been something that, that people have gotten through. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's a bummer. Um, I like those apples and I like those peaches. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, I like that uh, the Shoestring and Montague Reporter are uh, kicking each other some content once in a while. Sometimes we talk about that being something that more publications uh, could do down the road in this part of the state. Hmm. Okay. Uh, do you have a non sequitur? Well, one thing that I'm thinking about. Okay. Do you have a non sequitur? I have one. Okay. Shout out to the photo of the demolition of the Farron Memorial Hospital in Montague City. We told the listeners we would kind of like keep up with this story and the newspaper definitely is there's a photo by ed gregory so the demolition of the Farron is happening i don't know how long it will take but that's news yeah i think uh roughly a month but don't quote me on that i'm only a newspaper editor and that's just what i've i think heard verbally most recently feel free to go down and, and check it out and gawk at it. You know, I think that for a lot of people seeing that long-term care center and previously hospital come down is going to be an emotional thing. Mm -hmm. um, people, you know, even who um, didn't try to fight the demolition certainly have personal and family attachments to, to the structure. And it's really going to make that neighborhood look a lot different when it's no yeah. longer there separately it's can be fascinating to watch a thing like that come down so you know, a lot to gawk at over there right now uh, i've been riding my bike down and kind of peering over the chain link fence and yeah it's, it's definitely cool just uh, objectively and then uh, you know third thing is that there's been some concerns from neighbors that um, not all of the the safety and environmental protocol have been followed um, by the Demolition contractors. Maybe look at the future editions of the Montague Reporter for more on that. We'll see what ends up happening. Um, I saw, you know, pretty concerning video right before press time of, of oh, you know, no. a, a big, a big uh, cloud of um, dust. Anyway, um, uh, dust. after after one of the chimneys, um, you know, was brought down, yeah. and so you know, I felt 
enough like it was significant that I should just uh, sneak a mention of that into that caption. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I really don't that. know uh, you know the bigger things or if that was anyone's fault or if these neighbors are correct that it's because something wasn't being followed or you know if it was a fluke or what. So I didn't mm-hmm. want to really get too into that. Um, but you know, there's there. Yeah, you know, it's a big, big job. Breaking mm-hmm. like that down. There's probably right and wrong ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your non sequitur? Mine is that, as in previous years, the Montague Reporter goes into biweekly publication in July and August, mm-hmm. which means that a lot of volunteers or quasi volunteers um, have some much needed downtime to stretch and walk outdoors, um, touch the proverbial grass, um, call the friends that we've uh, been neglecting and apologize. (laughs) Um, And uh, beyond that, they started it, I think, uh, the paper in year one back in the fall and and by the summer seems like they needed a break. And the Montague Select Board also goes bi-weekly in July and August. So, uh, they just kind of followed that, and it's uh, been part of our, our business model ever since. But it means that after after this real every week publishing from January through June, we start getting getting these little breaks. So we've got right now three more weeks. <laughs> Once it gets to June every year, it's like you know just like looking at at um, how many more. It's a real kind of like uh, how many more days of school is there feeling. Yeah. So you're excited. So what you're saying. Yes. Nice. Yes. Good. We'll continue to podcast through the summer. We'll continue the podcast indefinitely, but yes, we will continue it through the summer. Yes. Yeah. Long Year Reporter Podcast is uh, made possible by listeners um, like you. (laughs) (laughs) If we didn't see that there were people listening, uh, we wouldn't keep doing this, is what I mean by that. Are you sure about that, Mike? That's a good question. Yeah, there, there's a little bit of a tree falling in the woods thing, but we have listeners, you're listening, and um, we really appreciate it. Let people know that this is happening. Subscribe to the paper and review the podcast. That also helps it get into other people's feeds, we're told. And this podcast, in addition to listeners, is made possible by our podcast editor, Stella Silver, who does a huge amount of work behind the scenes. And uh, thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for the music, except for the Ask the Editor uh, bumper music, which is also credited to Stella. Stella. Yeah. It's my favorite song. Thank you to Greenfield Community Television for equipment and technical support. Yeah.